Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this webinar today at the Heritage Foundation. Before we begin, I'd like to go over a few housekeeping notes. The session is recorded and will be emailed to you and posted on the Heritage Foundation website within 48 hours. All attendees are in listen-only mode right now. Today's event will be a conversation in two parts. First, the panelists and I will discuss the report of the State Department's Commission on Unalienable Rights. We will conclude our event with some audience Q&A. You can submit your questions in the questions box in the bottom part of the GoToWebinar control panel to the right. Thanks again for joining us. Now onto the discussion. In 2019, in July, Secretary of State Michael Pompeo announced the formation of the Commission on, Unali on Unalienable Rights. He charged the members of the Commission to meet with a broad group of experts and write a report to advise the Secretary on how to pursue and champion human rights, quote, grounded in our nation's founding principles and the principles of the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The Commission published its draft report last month and it has received, received both acclaim and criticism. I'm honored today to be joined by two distinguished scholars to discuss the Commission report and the varied reactions to it. Dr. Berkowitz and Dr. Rhodes, please join me on camera. Dr. Peter Berkowitz uh, currently serves as the Director of the State Department's Policy Planning Staff in the Office of the Secretary. In this capacity, Dr. Berkowitz served as the Executive Secretary of the Commission on Unalienable Rights. Prior to his current job, Dr. Berkowitz was the Tad and Diane Taub Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Prior to that, he taught political philosophy in the Department of Government at Harvard University from 1990 to 1999, and constitutional law and jurisprudence at George Mason University School of Law from 1999 to 2006. He is the author of several books, most recently Constitutional Conservatism, Liberty, Self-Government, and Political Moderation. Dr. Ann Rhodes is an international human rights activist and essayist based in Hamburg, Germany. He is a co-founder of the Freedom Rights Project and president of the Forum for Religious Freedom Europe. In 2019, he assumed the position of human rights editor of Dissident Magazine, a project of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Rhodes served as an executive, as executive director of the International Helsinki Federation for Human Rights between 1993 and 2007. He was also a founder of the International Campaign for Human Rights in Iran. In 2018, Rhodes authored a book titled The Debasement of Human Rights, How Politics Sabotaged the Ideal of Freedom. Thanks so much for both of you uh, to, for coming here today and talking about this great um, project and this important topic. I'd like to start the discussion today with Peter. Uh, for over a year now, I've read a lot of criticism of the commission, uh, that it was unnecessary, that it was biased from the get-go. If you don't mind, could you just give a brief overview of the commission? What was the purpose of it? What was, uh, how was it established? Who, was the, who were the members? How were they decided? And the process you oversaw in trying to make sure that it wasn't biased in terms of its content and the conclusions that it, that it made. Well, that's a big question. I'll be happy to give it a shot. First, I want to say thank you to Brett uh, for putting this together. Thank you uh, for, to, to Aaron for appearing. One of the purposes, actually, of the commission was to um, 
launch or relaunch a conversation about human rights and their uh, centrality to the American constitutional tradition. So this helps us uh, advance our goal. Thank you. Uh, as, as you mentioned, Brett, about a year ago, I guess July 2019, Secretary of State Pompeo published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in which he announced his intention to form the Commission on Unalienable Rights. He identified um, two, two principal tasks, um, regrounding America's undoubted commitment to human rights, the rights that are inherent in all persons, in America's founding documents and constitutional tradition, and regrounding that undoubted commitment in the obligations that the United States took on in 1948 in, uh, in helping secure approval for voting in favor of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. As you alluded to, uh, the very announcement of the commission uh, provoked uh, tremendous criticism, indeed outrage, I think within two weeks or so, the secretary received an open letter um, still available online from some 250 or so uh, human rights experts, scholars, journalists, NGOs, and so on, uh, demanding the immediate dismantling of the commission. Maybe in the first time in American political history that, um, a, commit, that a demand for a commission to be demand, dismantled was issued within two weeks of the announcement of its formation. Uh, Secretary Pompeo made a very wise move in appointing Marianne Glendon chair of the commission. Marianne is an extraordinary scholar who, um, to, to understand something about Marianne and the sensibility of the commission, it's worth appreciating that in the 1990s, she wrote a book uh, called Rights Talk, which she criticizes the excesses to which uh, rights have been taken. She became known as a critic of rights. In the early 2000s, she wrote a book called The World Made New about Eleanor Roosevelt and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, in which she celebrated that achievement. Marianne's work, I think, captures the sensibility shared by the members of the commission, a diverse lot. That is, rights are central to the American constitutional tradition, um, but also they are subject to abuses in a variety of ways. To properly vindicate rights, we need to reclaim them, reclaim them in terms of Americans' founding principles, understand them in the course of America's long historical struggle internally, and understand what they mean on the uh, international scene. Um, the criticisms, of course, were that the intention of the commission, Secretary Pompeo's secret intention, was to strip uh, women, minorities, the LGP, LGB, QT community of, of its rights, and so on. And yet, if there was one idea to which all members of the commission was, were committed, it was the idea that human rights are the rights that inhere in all persons, regardless of any qualification one might, uh, one might articulate. Under Marianne Glendon's leadership, the commission held six public meetings, we uh, invited a, a range of uh, scholars, even such critics of the commission as, uh, as Ken Roth. We listened to their, um, their arguments about various aspects of human rights, and we, uh, we issued a report at the conclusion of our deliberations. The draft came out, uh, I guess, in the middle of July, and now the final version of the report is available on the, um, on the State Department website.
The report has uh, three main parts. It begins with an introduction that lays out um, what even what a variety of scholars of human rights have called the crisis of human rights today. Controversies about about the nature, the scope of rights, worries about the proliferation of rights, as can be seen in the hundreds, if not thousands, of um, of different treaties there are uh, in the world now. The impossibility of any one individual of listing uh, the rights. We then in uh, we then follow with three substantive sections. One section examines the American political tradition, beginning with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. We document America's long struggle to bring our political reality in line with uh, those great promises. And something I think is a bit unusual, we emphasize the role that constitutional government and the virtues play in securing human rights. In the second part, we offer uh, a fresh reading that goes back to the original understanding of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And in the third uh, part, we, we discuss some of the new challenges to human rights, which alas, have not supplanted the old challenges. All the old challenges remain of doing justice in political affairs, including international affairs. New ones have, uh, have arisen, which I'd be glad to talk about. And in a final short section, we offer some concluding, concluding observations, not so much policy recommendations because the secretary was clear. We have a bureau in the State Department, the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, whose job it is to draft and implement policy. Our job was more to articulate that framework, the sensibility, the questions and the issues in light of which uh, officials in the State Department, fellow citizens and really um, people concerned about uh, human rights around the world the framework in which they might better think about the tough challenges. Thanks a lot. That's really interesting. I'm glad you uh, you were able to provide some context for for how the commission came about and and what the purposes of it were, what the secretary was looking to get from it. Uh, Aaron, uh, you heard uh, what Peter said. How there was instant outrage, almost instant outrage, with the announcement of the commission or the formation of the commission, uh, and the rather unusual. Uh, demand on the part of uh, NGOs. NGOs love commissions. They love meetings and opportunities to to provide input. So this uh, was rather unusual for them to demand the disbandment of a commission and an opportunity for them to give their input into the State Department. So from your perspective as a human rights activist, why was this reaction so strong? And what was what was exactly the concern here on the part of uh, the human rights community? <clears throat> well, thank you, Brad, and thank you. I'd like to add my, my thanks to, to those that Peter expressed for your organizing this uh, webinar. <clears throat> Excuse me, I, I can't uh, presume to speak um, on behalf of the human rights community, especially because uh, I'm a kind of apostate in the, this community myself. Um, but um, there seem to be several main lines of criticism, and I and I think it's worth noting that you know, and I think you did that. Virtually every all, all of this community rejected the, this report. They rejected the whole idea of of having such a project, and I think that in itself shows how politicized uh, human rights has become, and the human rights community has become. And I think we, we ought to draw, you know, think about why. Why has it become so politicized? And I, this is something that I, I would like to take up a little later in our discussion. 
another thing that it showed is how uniform the human rights community is. And, and, and there are, a few of us are, are upset by, by this kind of uniformity and this conformity, this kind of ossified uh, rigidity of the, of, of the thinking in the human rights community. But I actually sympathize with several of the criticisms, or I think that they deserve, uh, you know, a, a really close look. And one is that the composition of the commission uh, included few known experts on human rights. Um, and most of them seem to be scholars who uh, do, had devoted themselves to certain social issues and who agreed with one another on these social issues, namely um, uh, questions about the legitimacy of, of uh, same-sex marriage. And then another problem of it was that um, the language that was used to to announce and prom promote the commission at the beginning, especially, was very vague. And Secretary Pompeo talked uh, a number of times about what he called ad hoc rights, but he didn't say, you know, what what did he mean by that? What was an ad hoc right? And so this. Uh, and this this led to a lot of um, uh, fears, uh, which you mentioned, and Peter mentioned, I think that that they were they were um, that the commission was aimed at at, redu at, at restricting human rights, uh, which they would call the ad hoc rights. And so, um, <clears throat> just uh, one other point I'd like to make, and this this is I find very disappointing in these criticisms, is that. You know, there seemed to be a concern about any effort at all to make distinctions among the vast array of human rights embraced uh, in the international community. Uh, these were these in any effort to make distinctions is seen as a threat to entitlements and to collective rights. And the very notion of a distinction between unalienable rights and those established by positive law seemed threatening. Yet this is the distinction upon, upon which the very idea of universal human rights rests. Um, can I can I continue, or if I said enough? No, I, I actually I would I think this is a good point to allow Peter to talk about um, some of the criticisms that that were voiced there and, and his perspective on them, his response to them. Thank you. Yes. First, uh, um, thank you very much uh, uh, for the criticisms. Uh, let me try to respond. Concerning the composition, um, I mean, it, it should be noted that uh, there were, I think, 11 members, including Marianne, the chair, and, um, and myself. I, I served as the executive secretary, was the policy planning staff that housed the commission. Um, of those, at least um, Marianne Glendon, recognized scholar of international law, um, Paolo Carrazzo, uh, Katrina Lantos-Sweat, uh, Kenneth Anderson, whose uh, specific areas of expertise are certainly international law and human rights. Now, to supplement them, we had a range of uh, other scholars. One of our tasks was to locate, um, uh, to, to, to ground human rights in the American constitutional tradition. So we had a few others, such as uh, myself, Mayor Soloveitchik, who have been students of the American constitutional tradition, um, we had a range of other scholars who brought a humanist sensibility. So um, uh, 
I think that uh, we not only covered those bases, but also we certainly invited in to our, uh, our sessions undoubted experts on human rights. On the question of ad hoc, yes, it's uh, what, what does ad hoc mean? It's true that the secretary was relatively vague when he used that phrase in the Wall Street Journal, on the Wall Street Journal op-ed page. But um, such is the fate of people who appear on any, any editorial uh, op-ed, any op-ed page. They uh, speak in, um, in vague and abbreviated way. But what he meant, of course, by uh, ad hoc rights were, uh, in effect, um, not merely positive rights, that is, rights that have been acted into law through this system or that system, but the cre- increasing propensity, which Marianne Glendon has been documenting since the early 90s, increasing propensity for people to declare this political preference or that interpretation of the political good to be a right. This is actually very common still in, uh, in political discourse. And, and of course, the ambition is when one, one designates one's political preference, however, however much the polity may benefit from it, one designates it a right, once one is also saying this is universal, it is objective, it's necessary. And when you object, you're not just taking a different side in a uh, legitimate political deba- debate, you're on the wrong side of reason and morality. So I, I think that's what he had in mind with uh, ad hoc. As far as the distinction between uh, unalienable rights and positive rights, I, I think it's actually fair to say that that distinction runs through the commission's report. It is no distinction could be more fundamental to, to what we've analyzed. In fact, under that very name, we introduce it in part one uh, when we distinguish the unalienable rights, for example, in the declaration to the system of government that, uh, that was created, the Constitution, and various constitutional rights. And by the way, we insist on uh, the necessity of a whole system of political rights or positive rights for translating unalienable rights into practice. Without positive rights, there is, no, there is no protection of unalienable rights. Now, of course, what constitutes a positive right and what is an effective positive right for protecting unalienable rights, that's a matter of controversy. That's a matter of perennial controversy in a liberal democracy. And liberal, the democracy part of liberal democracy captures the necessity for constant discussion, debate, thinking and rethinking of what package of positive rights best secures our unalienable rights. Of course, now, Aaron, it is for sure correct that the um, commission avoided pronouncing on any particular controversies about whether this positive right or that positive right serves uh, America's uh, uh, commitment to unalienable rights. That was partly as a result of our our mandate um, from the secretary, part of uh, a result of the uh, division of labor within the State Department. That is, it's the it's the job within the statement of uh, the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, Labor to help figure out America's policy. But but I want to step back for a moment. I'll conclude here. Um, despite uh, declining to enter into the the difficult debates about whether this positive right or that positive right serves the cause of unalienable rights, we it was it was our aim. To, I, to sharpen the questions, to refine appreciation of the issues, 
so that men and women would be in a better position amidst, but in democratic political debate, to come to responsible answers um, for these times and these circumstances to those perennial questions. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's uh, a clear line of thought throughout the report, as you mentioned at the end, you know, the, the distinction between these two. Um, one thing that I, I found interesting is one of the criticisms of the report uh, was that it was dangerous that the report's conclusions were dangerous to uh, to human rights, they're dangerous to the enjoyment of rights abroad. Um, how do you respond to that? And could you go over what exactly the report says um, and, and why some people might be interpreting it that way? Uh, and I guess this is directed to Peter. And then I want to go back to Aaron and, and talk about some criticisms that he had um, about the report as well. So I'll try to be briefer here. Um, um, I think uh, people have been saying that the report was dangerous to human rights before the commission was formed. I believe they continue to say it in part, um, in part because they ignore um, what we actually wrote in the report. Um, on, on any fair reading, I believe, we leave most of the controversial questions, by far, certainly not, not all, because we do, we do um, examine a number of controversial questions about how the Declaration of Independence should be read, how the Constitution should be understood, how the UDHR should be read. These are controversial questions. In fact, it's as I don't have to tell you both, it's controversial to even take seriously the Declaration of Independence of the UDHR. Indeed, today it's become controversial uh, to see the Declaration of Independence as a guiding light, a, su a supreme standard for American politics, as opposed to a reflection of America's systemic racism. So it would be wrong to say that we avoid uh, all controversial issues. But I do want to mention um, one way in which we've been accused of being dangerous. It's very interesting. I heard this uh, from, from members of Congress. I've heard it from journalists. Um, you're dangerous because your commission, I've been told, um, uh, gives support to China and Russia. How do we give support to China and Russia? Because the United States has turned to its own traditions, Declaration, the Constitution, the American constitutional history, to find uh, justification for its commitment to human rights. Won't this authorize China and Russia to turn to their traditions? And when they do so, won't they find further justification for undercutting human rights? First of all, I'd like to say uh, that this shows uh, a certain uh, contempt for these other traditions. It implies that the only authoritative tradition of Russia or the only tra authoritative tradition of uh, Chinese history is that of the C Chinese Communist Party or Vladimir Putin. That's incorrect. But a second point. Um, this criticism of the commission reflects a misunderstanding of the spirit in which the UDHR was presented to the world. Um, Jacques Maritain introduced a report um, uh, put out by UNESCO the year that the UDHR was uh, approved. And the report um, uh, contained short essays from philosophers from around the world in the explaining how from their various perspectives, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights could be affirmed. Mary Tain summarized the conclusion. 
it is reasonable to hope that people from different nations, different peoples with different traditions could agree on a small number of concrete principles about what no state may do, about what all states have an obligation to do. But it was unreasonable to hope that, that different nations and peoples from around the world would reason to the, the small number of concrete principles in the same way. So the hope was different nations and different peoples would turn to their own traditions and find within them moral, philosophical, religious resources for affirming the small number of concrete principles. When Secretary Pompeo asked the commission to do just that, he was actually operating, and I believe more than many human rights activists understand, within the spirit of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So uh, we, by the way, have made the report available in a variety of uh, foreign languages, starting with Chinese, Russian, Arabic, uh, Farsi, Hindi, uh, Spanish, and French. And yes, of course, it's our hope that people, that our fellow citizens and peoples around the world will come to appreciate the wonderful contributions of the founders of Lincoln, as a, of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, Martin Luther King. But it's also our hope that we will inspire nations and peoples around the world to, again, more than 70 years after the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, to turn to their own traditions and discover, rediscover the moral, the philosophical, the religious resources for reaffirming those rights that are inherent in all persons. Thank you. Um, Aaron, um, I, I know, uh, well, first of all, uh, I'll let you just respond to that and, uh, and give your thoughts as to, uh, in terms of whether the report offers an opportunity for other countries to sort of uh, use it to justify not adhering to human rights, uh, basic fundamental human rights. Uh, but second, I also wanted to give you an opportunity to, uh, to voice your perspective on the report itself. Uh, I know that you uh, had some criticisms about the report's treatment of economic, social, and cultural rights, and it's uh, nod to the UN notion that all human rights are, quote, indivisible, interdependent, interrelated. So would you like to uh, just open the floor and let you discuss both of those things? <clears throat> yes, I will. Uh, but, uh, but before I do that, uh, Brett, I'd like to talk about one of the other criticisms uh, that was made. And I think this is something that shows something important about the way we think about human rights and about our own political culture. And that is that the word natural law, at the beginning of, of the, when the commission was first announced, there was a lot of talk about natural law. And um, some scholars who had been, who have been associated with natural law were associated with the, uh, the idea of the commission. And the fact is that the, the words natural law are seen as code language for religious fundamentalism and the denial of marriage equality. And this kind of set off a panic. Um, but um, we, we can't really think very clearly about, about human rights and about, about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights either without reference to natural law because the framers of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, especially Hirsch Lauter Pact, built the whole uh, concept on the foundation of natural law. And he, by the way, observed um, 
that in periods of rising nationalism, like our own, uh, interest in natural law rises because natural law acts as a counterbalance to state power. Um, so, okay, that's just, I just wanted to put that in because I think when we talk about criticisms of this document and, and the whole process, that was a very important uh, point of controversy. <clears throat> um, now, getting to my my problems with the report, and by the way, I think the report is very good in general, and I, and I hope, uh, Peter, that you see my comments in, in the light of that view. But uh, what I'm concerned about specifically is that under some future administration, this report will likely be used to advocate for the ratification of the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and, and Cultural Rights. The United States has signed this already under Carter because it will be used to demonstrate bipartisan support for ratification of this treaty. And, uh, you know, I hope I'm not giving anybody any ideas, actually, uh, in, 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 in raising this, this anxiety. But, um, and I think this would be quite an odd legacy for a project ostensibly aimed at renewal of our commitment to unalienable rights. Um, if we, uh, we Americans, we have to stick to this distinction between unalienable rights and, and social and economic rights. Um, uh, if we are signing this treaty, uh, or if we're ratifying the treaty, I should say, this would lead to an unprecedented level of intrusion on our democracy, on issues that should be decided democratically, not by courts or quasi-judicial UN committees. It would hogtie our elected representatives in the course of making social policy. And by the way, I'd like to make the point that I'm not against economic and social rights at all. Uh, I'm against them being seen as human rights. These are, I think these are positive rights that are, that states should um, uh, give to their citizens. But, um, and I, and I think that our democracy should be constrained by uh, human rights, real human rights, un uh, unalienable rights. And international standards in this regard are very valuable. And when our democracy goes off the, go off the rails, when we start violating freedom of expression, freedom of association, um, uh, freedom of religion, uh, hopefully uh, human rights activists will refer to the, our, our legal obligation under the ICCPR and saying, you know, you cannot do this. And they'll use this as an international standard, as, a, you know, its legitimacy this way. Uh, but the, with the economic and social rights, uh, why, why uh, Peter, why did you have to uh, go so strong for these rights? Because there's a, there's a history of ambivalence, as you know. Um, in, uh, in, in, in there, there have been different ways the State Department has handled uh, the fact that, you know, okay, we're for the UDHR, but we don't consider these really human rights. And so, so the, the American officials have always walked a kind of line between in this, in this question, and they've used the kind of slights of hand and, they've some, and, and, and so on to try to sort of finesse the issue. And maybe that's the best way to, to do it. 
because uh, coming out strongly against uh, economic and social rights is, is not a is, is politically very dangerous in the international community. You can take it from me. And um, uh, and you know there's a, there's an interest in appeasing this idea and patronizing it. Uh, and I can understand that from a political point of view, but I really think we have to get beyond this problem. And, and if you just look at what's going on in the international community, look at international human rights institutions, look at the proliferation of economic and social and collective rights. This is not a good thing. And this is coming from the idea of economic and social rights. That's where it all started. That's where the floodgates were opened. That, that allowed it. This is where the politicization of human rights comes. And so, uh, and, and if you look today at what goes on in the UN and the UPR process and in the Human Rights Council, you have North Korea and China bragging about how they uphold human rights uh, and everybody eats it up. And, um, uh, you know, in the UPR, the last UPR of North Korea, Fully half of the states which intervened in this uh, session praised North Korea because of various uh, uh, things they said about economic and social rights. And so anybody, any citizen watching that who doesn't know really what's going on, and that includes most people, would think, well, you know, yeah, they, they do torture people, but on the other hand, uh, they have free, uh, economic, free health care. So it's kind of a mixed picture with North Korea. And I think this is a terribly dangerous thing. And this shows you how the whole moral structure of human rights has become completely fogged in in the international community. And it, the, the, the problem is um, economic and social rights. Okay. Um, I'm going to let Peter respond to that. And then I've got, uh, I'm going to go through very quickly some of the criticisms uh, that have been lodged about the report. Uh, and then let you both respond to that. And then we'll go to audience Q&A right after that. So, uh, uh, Peter, if you want to respond to Aaron's comments real quick, we can go to that second step. Terrific. Thanks. Um, well, uh, Aaron has uh, eloquently described some real problems in uh, international human rights world. I certainly agree that, um, uh, that uh, social and economic rights especially have been subject to uh, proliferation and politicization. But I, but I do want to go back about our treatment of it. Um, Aaron, you, you yourself, I think, pointed out in, um, uh, in the nice piece you published in the Wall Street Journal about the report that, um, that when we speak about social and economic rights in the American uh, constitutional tradition, we say they're, they're most justified when they're consistent with freedom, when they don't, when they enable, uh, uh, citizens in the country to take advantage of the rights, least justified uh, when they induce dependence. Now, um, this is connected to the place, I think, of social and economic rights in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. You know, we, we've been, the Commission has been criticized on both sides for uh, affirming the principle that the rights in the UDHR are universal, indivisible, interdependent, and interrelated. But that's actually a very important check on social and economic rights. Social and economic rights in the UDHR are presented as, in important respects, relevant to the, uh, sorry, um, uh, related to the particular conditions of uh, any, any given political society. Whereas other rights, 
like um, or other prohibitions. You mentioned the prohibition against torture. That's presented as absolute. The civil and political rights are presented as all but absolute. So it seems to me already implicit in the structure um, of the of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is that social and economic rights, because they're interdependent, are not permitted to be elaborated in or implemented in such a way as they violate rights to um, uh, rights to be free from torture, arbitrary prison, arbitrary detention, um, arrest, imprisonment, punishment. Um, basic rights of the of the family, of speech, of expression, and so on. Now, in practice, can states abuse this? Of course they can abuse this. But as, as Justice Scalia used to point out, uh, the Soviet Union had a beautiful Bill of Rights with lots of protections of basic civil and political rights. They violated them. What protects rights, as we emphasized in the commission, what protects rights most effectively is a form of limited government where power resides in the people, but the people's will is limited by certain fundamental protections. That also will be a guide to us in um, effectuating a proper balance between a certain standard of living below which people are not allowed to fall and the protection of uh, unalienable rights. So that, uh, I'll close with this. Uh, This will be one of those uh, perennial discussions within a liberal democracy where to draw the line, but I believe that we have the resources within the UDHR and within the analysis of the of the Commission's report to draw the necessary distinctions and to impose the necessary limits. Thank you both. Um, I'm going to go very quickly now. There's uh, you mentioned the outrage and the letter that was signed by NGOs at the Secretary's announcement of the Commission. Um, but there's also a lot of letters and submissions to uh, to the commission uh, in response to the draft report that was released last month. And one letter uh, had a number of NGOs, over 100 NGOs signed on to it, and they listed five different criticisms. And I'm going to go through them uh, pretty quickly here. And I just want you both to react to those criticisms and let me know um, what you think about them. Um, the first of those is they rejected the idea that, quote, a proliferation of rights claims has undermined the legitimacy and credibility of the human rights framework. You've touched on that both, but um, that's uh, one of the criticisms, the first one. The second criticism uh, was an argument that the report's failure to focus on more recent human rights treaties is a fundamental flaw, and it illegitimately disregards, quote, an international consensus regarding the scope of human rights. Third, they perceive an implicit hierarchy of rights in the report that prioritizes property rights and religious liberty over other rights. Uh, Fourth, they object to the report's, quote, deeply disturbing distinction between unalienable rights and what it describes as social and political controversies of abortion, affirmative action, and same-sex marriage. And finally, they object to the uh, proposed criteria for recognizing new rights that will quote, in practice, circumscribe the ability of all people to claim their full rights. So this gets to that, I think, danger uh, uh, criticism of the report. So it's a lot. There's five different criticisms. They're all very uh, involved. But uh, if you want to take a moment to maybe uh, respond to those criticisms um, in a couple of minutes, and then we can go on to Q&A, 
Uh, and this is for a, an opportunity for both of you. Yep. Happy to lead off, and I, I'll treat this spread as a lightning round. Two or three seconds. Okay. More on it. Uh, first, um, to deny proliferation is simply to deny the way the world really is. I had many con conversations with staffers at, at, at Congress. I would ask them, please tell me how many human rights there are. I got replies, well, there are hundreds or thousands of treaties. I can't possibly enumerate them all. Precisely, case closed, there is a proliferation. The commission didn't deal with treaties. That's right. That wasn't our mandate. We were asked to deal with America's founding principles and with the UDHR and new challenges. We honored our mandate, but there is nothing in our commission, in our report, that in any way disparages the treaties that the United States uh, enters into. To the contrary, we affirm their legally binding character, provided that there are treaties that have been entered into consistent with America's constitutional procedures. Uh, as far as hierarchy uh, of rights, as we stress in the report, um, yes, the, the, um, the UDHR, it is recognized that the rights in the UDHR are uh, universal, indivisible, interdependent, and interrelated. But as we stress, the UDHR makes distinctions. Human bodies are universal. Nevertheless, it's worse to lose a finger than a fingernail. It's worse to lose a hand than a finger. And it's worse to lose your head than your hand. We can make distinctions, and we have to make distinctions. Indeed, every human rights organization makes distinctions in how it allocates funds, which, which sets of rights it puts a priority on. Um, so again, distinctions among rights are inherent in the UDHR. Uh, as far as the distinction between unalienable rights and social political rights, I heard many people uh, to that response we often said that the job of the commission was not to resolve controversies, but to make sure people understood the controversies. We gave abortion as an example. Uh, we would say that uh, we recognize that on one side of the debate, people claim that uh, women have a right to control their bodies, terminate their pregnancies. On the other side of the debate, people say unborn children have uh, inherent rights, and those rights supersede the right of women to control their bodies. And we often heard the reply, no, there is no argument on the other side. Simply as an empirical matter in the United States today, to say nothing around the world, there remains a serious debate about how the question of alien, alienable rights should be interpreted in relation to this vexing controversy and others, and I believe we report that accurately. Uh, and finally, um, recognition of uh, new rights. I do believe it's true that uh, based on the criteria we laid out, it is harder for um, any one human rights organization, or now as it's become fashionable, a professor of law to write a law review article and insist that his or her publication creates authoritative uh, creates a new right or authoritative international law. But I believe true to the spirit of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the tradition rightly understood, we say that there are criteria for recognizing a new right. What are those criteria? Well-rooted in the American, American principles and constitutional tradition, rooted in the language of the UDHR. Um, affirmed through America's constitutional process, capable of generating support from uh, peoples and nations from, uh, from around the world. 
Those are not arbitrary criteria. Those are criteria that derive from a, a, a fount of, um, uh, of international human rights law, the, uh, uh, the UDHR. Thank you very much. Aaron, you have the last word on this before we go to audience Q&A. Well, you know, one of the reasons why there's been so much <clears throat> um, negative, in fact, almost completely negative uh, reactions to, to to the, you know, the, the institution of the commission and the report itself is that it's been done by the Trump administration. <laughs> so um, there's a kind of a priori uh, rejection of, of anything having to do with human rights done by the Trump administration, I think, and this because the human rights community uh, is is very left wing, and this is just a fact. And um, um, that, that's one point I think we we have to consider when we look at these uh, the criticisms. Uh, but then, <clears throat> when it comes along to the question of economic and social rights, um, what our our Roger Pilon and myself, the only <laughs> the only people who who have are concerned about this. I mean, you didn't get any praise. From the left left wing human rights community for coming along with a more with with something which is unprecedented, I think, in American political thought. I mean, it's a quasi official commission. Uh, you have endorsed economic and social rights much stronger, uh, I think, than anything uh, except maybe going back to the Carter administration when they saw, when they have signed the uh, the treaty. And so you didn't get any praise from this. Uh, uh, instead, you just got a lot of criticism, and um, and I and I, I I think a lot of it is just dogma, and it's very brittle and reactionary in in character. Um, but uh, on the other hand, I mean, we did succeed in starting a conversation, you know, and and this should continue uh, because you know these aren't problems that that are going to be completely resolved. They're part of a kind of platonic dialogue that's going on. Uh, that should go on. And, and, you know, that's the way America works. Um, America works by dialogue and by back and forth and, uh, and, and giving everybody a voice. And for that, I, I'm grateful. And I don't think we should fear these criticisms. And maybe even today, we're being too negative about them. We should welcome, welcome th these criticisms and invite them in and, 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 and encourage uh, continuation of, of talking about these very profound questions. Thank you. I think that's right. I th um, and I think that was actually the intent of, of the, re uh, the commission itself was to sort of lay out the groundwork for further development, further discussion of these issues going forward to, to inform uh, the Secretary of State, the State Department, on how these issues continue to resonate and continue to uh, elicit discussion inside the United States, and, and we need to recognize that um, in terms of our relationships with other countries and in terms of our relationship with these different uh, human rights claims through either NGOs or through the treaty bodies themselves. Um, I'm going to go to the Q&A now and uh, the audience Q&A. The first question is for, uh, is for Peter, and the question is, uh, Hello, thank you for the discussion. That's a very polite questioner. Um, I would like to know if there has been any substantial change in the final report in regards to the draft that was presented in July. The answer is no, there have been no substantial changes. 
Um, and there's an e easy, intelligible reason for that. Uh, as, as we've suggested at a number of points in this conversation, the, com the criticisms of the commission began early, they began often, we had six public meetings, we read widely. After each public meeting, we, we fielded and we uh, processed criticism from the public. So um, we had, before the, the draft report was released, actually wrestled with a, a great range of um, criticism. We made some adjustments here and there, we made a few grammatical errors, we adjusted one or two, uh, one or two formulations, but uh, in general and for the most part, uh, it wasn't that the criticism we received was unserious, it was that the criticism that we received after the report was, uh, was drafted, was final drafted, and often went over the same territory of received. And here I, I do just want to say um, thank you to Aaron and to you for your recent comments. You're exactly right. We actually underscore in the introduction. One of our purposes is to prompt conversation. These are tough questions. We we fully expect, I think I speak for all of the commissioners and Marianne, we fully expect to, to improve our own understanding through the kind of conversation we're having here. So thanks. You're welcome. The second question uh, is directed to Aaron. Um, we're getting some feedback on there. I'm sorry. Um, Aaron, the question is, uh, you've been critical about the report's treatment of social, uh, economic, and cultural rights, but how could the commission, which was charged to examine the UDHR, repudiate what the document embraces? Are you calling for rejecting parts of the UDHR or a revision of the UDHR? Well, I'm not calling for anything. Um, I'm um, reacting to the report, uh, um, and I know that this is a dilemma. We have a dilemma, with, in my opinion, with a dilemma with regard to the UDHR, which uh, I think, you know, is inconsistent with the constitutional principles. It's inconsistent with our Bill of Rights. And this is a dilemma that has been going on since 1948, and you can see it being played out in the way that... Uh, uh, various uh, American officials and scholars have addressed the question of economic and social rights in the UDHR, and um, there's been a, a, a you know there's a lot. Of, I think I said before there 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 have been there have been a number of different uh, ways these being you know some of some Amer I look I'm working in international human rights and I'm dealing with very often in you know with State Department officials and the way they. Uh, they, they treat these questions uh, in, in places like Belarus and, uh, you know, abroad, in other words. And, um, and very often they'll say, well, we don't, we don't believe in economic and social rights. So, so people come up and criticize the United States for not embracing economic and social rights. They say, well, we don't believe in them. Other people say, well, we, we do kind of believe in them. We think they're goals. <clears throat> their goals, they're not rights, but they're goals. So we kind of agree with these goals. And so there's a kind of, like I said, there's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's kind of a, a dilemma, isn't it? And, um, and I don't really think, I think the report reflects this dilemma. It's a kind of continuation of ambivalent language, but it goes much stronger toward embracing e economic and social rights as human rights. 
um, than than uh, than before. And um, um, you know, I obviously don't think this is such a good idea. And I think that the I think we should stick with our 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 constitution. I think we should stick with our Bill of Rights, and we should we should try to do something about this mess in the international community as regards economic and social rights. There should be leadership by coming, coming out of the United States to try to rationalize the, the international human rights system because it's a mess. Let me tell you, uh, uh, if you go, if you spend time in, in Geneva, like I do all the time and you hear what's going on, you, you know, basic liberties, are relegated to a very small part of the discussions in the international human rights institutions. Very small part. The rest of it is talking about social policy questions. Yes, these are important questions, but they cannot be solved, as my colleague uh, Jacob Mushangama has said. They cannot be solved within the matrix of human rights. Thank you. Um, the next question from uh, the audience is... Uh, not addressed to either one of you in particular, so I'll just go ahead and leave you uh, the option to address it if you like. Um, a diverse group of faith leaders have expressed concern, including in a joint letter to the secretary, that his interpretation of the report, if religious freedom is considered a most prominent right in the U.S. foreign policy, could actually undermine efforts to advance religious liberty around the world. If not all human rights are considered unalienable, then how can those who rely on the right to religious freedom feel confident that our rights to freedom of assembly, freedom from discrimination, and a number of other rights um, uh, on which our diverse religious community relies. How will the State Department ensure that the report does not actually damage other universal human rights? So it's getting back to the concept that uh, the report approach to different rights uh, could actually be damaging to the rights that we all um, hold very dear. Um, uh I don't actually think, uh, as you can imagine, that that's a sound criticism. Uh, the, there is a line in the first part of the report where we um, accurately state that in the 18th century, the founders believed that among the unalienable rights were um, property rights and religious freedom. I believe that's an accurate statement of, uh, of the view which we were charged to support. Uh, People inferred from that that our view was that the United States foreign policy should be exclusively about championing property rights and religious freedom around the world. Um, we don't say that. That's not um, what American foreign policy is. There is no warrant in our report for drawing that conclusion. Having said all that, I would like to um, make this point. It turns out that there is a very strong correlation between countries that protect religious liberty and countries that protect all the other freedoms that are important, to, that have been important to American foreign policy, bipartisan human rights policy. In fact, I, I urge listeners to, to do this experiment for themselves. Can they imagine a country, do they know of a country that vigorously protects religious freedom, which is belief about what God wants of us, which has historically been one of the great questions over which we have killed one another. Can you identify a country across the globe that vigorously protects religious liberty, but does not protect the rights of women 
or the rights of any other minorities. In fact, as I said, there's a very strong correlation. Moreover, do you know of a country that protects the rights of women where freedom of religion is not also protected? These rights go to go together. It is not the invidious distinction between religious liberty and other kinds of liberties is not present in our report. It's actually in present in the, um, the criti criticisms that are leveled at the report. Thank you very much, Aaron. Would you like to address that question? <clears throat> well, um, you, all, all human rights uh, activists make priorities of the human rights that they work on. Um, all, all governments prioritize which human rights that they work on. Uh, as they should. And uh, I, I don't understand. I think this is, you know, the, 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 there's so many things are called human rights today. Now, look, is the human right to, you know, government or publicly funded employment counseling just as important as the right to to be free from torture? Now, if you have a, a, a we all have limited time and energy. I mean, if, you, if you're looking at a torture victim or you're looking at somebody that wants employment counseling, where are you going to put your attention? Of course, you have to make priorities. And, and uh, these, this is, you know, given, given the proliferation of human rights, this is a, this is a, this is a necessity. Um, and uh, this is a normal human uh, everything depends. Morality itself is depending on prioritizing what's important and what isn't important in life. And and uh, I, I don't have any problem with this. I think that uh, um, we didn't talk about the indivisibility question, which is another one of my beefs with this report, by the way. Um, but I mean, I think that the basic civil and political rights are indivisible. Uh, and I think the problem comes when you start using indivisibility as a as a weapon to promote economic and social rights as priori as, as priorities and to degrade liberty liberty is indivisible uh and and, and that's for sure and and uh, um but when you start balancing uh these liberties against uh you know something like uh, you know employment counseling and saying well you, you don't worry about don't worry about you know freedom of expression until you till you get that to get those you know taxpayer funded employment counselors engaged but this is what goes on um this is exactly the kind of thing that is that goes on in dialogues in in the in, in the international community about human rights and that's why indivisibility of human rights is which by the way is has been rejected by most scholars uh, most legal scholars as something that is kind of a, a just a you know a kind of dogma or slogan um, is not. I, mean, I think I was kind of disappointed in the report in the report by the way it you know it jumped on that. Okay, uh, thank you, thank you both. Um, we're coming up close to the edge of our time. I think we have time for one more lightning round question if you want to have it, and that is uh, how does the right to vote fit within the scheme of rights? as the report discusses, or as the report lays out? Uh, very briefly, we, we treat that as a, um, as a political right, a right that um, the Constitution grants, uh, but as essential within a liberal democracy for the realization, the protection, the securing 
of our unalienable rights. Thank you very much. Thank you both, uh, Aaron, Peter. This is a great discussion. I'm really happy that you were able to spend so much time with us today to go over these different things and to uh, tease out differences of opinion between the both of you and also to address many of the concerns that have been uh, voiced uh, by other parts of the human rights community. I also want to thank the audience for joining us here and coming to Heritage today. And we would like to just reiterate that uh, the uh, this event was recorded and should be available on heritage.org within a few days. Thank you so much.